and those insecticide sprayers that are like a container, yeah. maybe they hold like five gallons, they got a pump on them and a hose coming off of them. No that's, way. That's, that's what people are using to inject bodies. Because that hose is about the same size as the hose you put on your arterial tube. All right, Dr. D, special guest, the infamous hey. one. <laughs> Give me your favorite fun fact that you've ever dropped. If, if our listeners don't know who he is, he gives these fantastic fun facts like for very frequently for Frigid, and he's well known throughout the whole industry, throughout the world. So we'll get into all that stuff, but let me hear your favorite fun fact that you've ever dropped. They can actually be hard to do, the fun facts. I've gotten more comfortable with like um, where to derive the information from because at first I was like, what am I going to talk about? You know, right. And now what I do, because I'm, I'm an instructor and I teach uh, sciences for mortuary, um, a mortuary program and uh, I teach embalming. And so now what I do is whatever my lesson plan is that week, I just pull some uh. fact from there. So it's made it really easy to narrow it down. And I think the scope of what I'm trying to do is to educate embalmers worldwide, just kind of a refresher of like what's going on with the science. Yeah. Um, because I think people who have been in the field, when they are in school, the context is not quite there to put all of the, the uh, theory into place. Yeah. And once people get out in the field and you're like, oh, this is a protein and this is what's happening. Um, and formaldehyde cross links with it. And then people are like, oh, wait, now that makes a little bit more sense because I see it happening. Uh, but it's kind of nice, too, that I'm pulling from lesson plans that are used by all the schools. And so, you know, it applies to students. And I try my best to make it for non-funeral people. Um, sure. So, I, yeah, I think some of the fun ones are when I can correlate it to uh, the environment around me. That's That's the most fun, like... We did one where we were near water. I think I may have been in water and we were talking yeah. about edema and that was kind of fun yeah. just because it's different, you know, um, I remember that one. and those can be kind of exciting. Yeah. I think that's such a, such a true point when you're in school, you don't really understand, you get embalming, but you don't like really understand what you're doing in the prep room at all until you're in the field for at least a good full year. And then at that point, you kind of lost what you were learning in school. So I think that's such a, a good way to go about things is like, hey, this is the applicable nature of the chemistry behind things. And I know for myself, like, it's very yeah. informative and helpful because I wouldn't think about the chemistry behind it without like kind of going through these and talking with people like you, because you get so ingrained into kind of the system that you do and you know what works and what doesn't work and how it does but it's cool to learn what goes behind it, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I find the joy in it. And when, because uh, you know I have a textbook, it's a chemistry textbook, and I know probably everybody that's listening reads that book over and over, cover to cover, because everybody <laughs> loves a textbook about chemistry. It's next to my nightstand. <laughs> right, yeah, it's right on the nightstand. Uh, <laughs> best sleeping lozenge for sure. Um, when we wrote the textbook, uh, one of the goals was to put it into a context that students and practitioners out in the field would appreciate. So we use as many references to things they would see in the funeral industry. Yeah. So for example, when we talk about solutions, it's real easy to talk about embalming solution, but there's solid solutions as well. So we talked about bronze and alloys and things like that. And so we wanted to put it into a context because absolutely, I think you hear this stuff in the classroom and then you move forward and you, it's not that you forget it. You just, when you revisit it, it really solidifies it when you're out in the field. And, and that's, you know, really my goal. Um, I, my apprenticeship, just so you know, I, I don't know if you know this about me. I went to mortuary school in 1993. Yeah, and so my apprenticeship was, yeah, it was some, yeah, my apprenticeship, I did it in 94 and 95. And yeah. I remember, you know, we were interacting with families and, you know, the embalmers I was with, they didn't always understand the science behind what was going on. And I always give the example of like, I don't know, jaundice or edema. And I yeah. would hear people give, you know, responses to family questions because they felt they had to give a response that was just uh, not accurate. And I thought, well, that's very strange. And I thought, well, you know, I, I think the, the market, today's market, when people walk into a funeral home, if they're going to ask a question, I believe they already know the answer because they've looked it up somewhere right? They've Googled it. Yes. So if they have a question about edema or jaundice or whatever, 
they're going to have they're going to have the answer because we do that when we shop around. We do that when we have questions. We don't walk in somewhere and just trust an expert anymore because we have access to millions of experts. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that we keep in mind. We have to keep in mind when someone's like, I have a question about X, Y, Z, and you're supposed to be the expert and let's see what you say. Um, so, you know, 30 years ago, the answers didn't quite work in today's market. So that, that's sort of the other part of the goal too. And I, I think it's important. Yeah. There's, all the consumers now are educated and you mm -hmm. have to be aware of what you're saying and making sure that you actually fully understand because you can't really BS yourself nowadays but when you're and not that you would want to, but you can't, can't get away with it anymore right. because people understand way more and this information is out there. And I think that's the beauty of it because people want to understand if their loved one did, you know, have jaundice at the end of their life, they're going to know that. So they want to know, yeah. What is the process and what actually goes behind it to kind of help them to look better? So that's, I would love to hear what is your process? Like if you had a jaundice case, what would your normal, like given a, a normal situation, if someone had jaundice, do you have a special kind of way you go about that? Or what does that look like for you? Well, it's, it's gonna, you know, jaundice is, jaundice, I think one of the big conundrums in embalming is you, when you get a jaundice okay. case, they usually have edema. Right. Yeah. They usually have edema. So you're like, now my personal view is that if somebody has jaundice, my, I'm, my PhD is in pathology, right? Okay. So I, I look at everything through this pathology sort of disease or communicable disease lens. And when I see jaundice, I instantly go to, they, they could potentially have, cause I didn't, I, I worked at a, a funeral homes and you know, where I, you know, even in school, I don't always see the causes of death. So I have no idea what the person died right. of. I don't know if it's related to cirrhosis, cancer, medication. I always assume it's something communicable. So I, I treat everybody like, okay, disinfection is a big part of what we do. Sanitation is a big part of what we do. And that's one of the sort of paramount in my mind. Um, and, um, you know, when you have edema and jaundice, you want to dry the body out. So I would probably typically go with a, a slightly higher concentration. I mean, just off the cuff. Um, if yeah. somebody's, you know, if they're emaciated, then I, I can, you know, use a different concentration of solution. Sure. And uh, but but that's that's sort of my thing is I always do look at, you know, you know, what is the overall conditions of the body, not just one single one, because there's always more than yeah. one. Always, especially nowadays. But tough. It's tough. It's a tough answer. It's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, you know, I hear it every semester when we talk about jaundice, students will say, well, why hasn't someone come up with a fluid or a chemical that works really well with jaundice? And yeah. it's like the research just isn't there. Our industry doesn't have the dollar signs behind it to say, you know what, for a certain percentage of people that die that don't want to have a jaundice case, go from Billy Verdon into really Ruben to really Verdon, what are we going to do with that? It's, there's just not the research behind it. Um, and that's, right. you know, unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. And aldehydes, uh, in my experience, whether it's glutaraldehyde or formaldehyde, they're going to cause that conversion as some downstream factor of the embalming process. Yeah. And I think it, it would be different for other types of medical industries. They have big universities behind it and we don't sort of have hmm. that. So we don't have the finance and nor do people, I mean, it's not that people don't care, but there's not as big of a desire because it's such a small kind of mm -hmm. community, small thing that it, it's really tough. And so we can it do is. everything we can to, to get it um, situated as best as possible. I want to get your take. So if I had like a bad jaundice case and I, I really don't like to use dye very often, <laughs> I think the fluids nowadays have don't do an unbelievable job with coloration. But if you have someone that has that very, very bad um, skin condition, I would mix that in during my pre-injection. And it does seem to help me a little bit. I want to get your thoughts on that because I do see a little bit more splotchiness. Is there, a, is there some chemistry behind that? Like why, if you have a higher concentration of a dye, it does help, especially if I'm going like up into the face, because obviously that's a big space that we want to make sure we have that nice coloration is what is the reasoning behind that? And what are your thoughts on, on doing something like that? If I had a jaundice case, um, I think with a pre-injection, depending on the chemicals that you are using, you're seeing a splotchiness because the num the volume of surfactants that are in the pre-injection. 
So um, when we add our arterial solution, those typically will have modifying agents in there. And one of those would be surfactants. That really helps with your distribution. And that's, you know, every chemical company or most chemical companies, you know, 99%, well, yeah. probably less than that, are using formaldehyde as their primary preservative or they're using glutaraldehyde. So one, that, that covers everybody, really. You know, yeah. it's formaldehyde or glutaraldehyde. And water is the primary vehicle in that solution that you're making. Water and formaldehyde don't travel well through the capillary system. Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, I'm always shocked, and I, I say this, I kind of do this like pop trivia question, you know, how many miles of capillaries does an adult human body have on average? And people are always like, I don't know, two, four, five, well, it's 60,000 miles or something. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. It's a humongous number. And yeah. trying to push uh, water through that system is really challenging to do because water tends to stick and the molecules stick together. It sticks to the sides. You know, when you drink out of a straw, you can see water kind of climbing up the sides yeah. of the straw. Yeah. And so in arterial fluid, there is a lot of surfactant put in there and different companies will use different volumes of surfactants. Oh. And that's why sometimes you'll see some splotchiness and other times you don't. Well, that's one of the, that's one of the factors. I think it's probably the biggest factor because across all the companies I I've recognized some companies, typically I see splotchy other companies, typically I do not. And so it's gotta be what they're adding, of course. And so the volume and types of surfactants do become important in that distribution of things like dye. Now, what, what should concern you is if you see splotchiness of dye, you're also not getting, that's uneven distribution of dye. Absolutely. But what you're also getting is uneven distribution of your preservative. So you're going to have areas that are preserved more than others. And so this yeah. is where you run into a problem where you might get some skin slip and spots and other spots are over embalmed. Interesting. That's very yeah. cool. Do you have um, a recommendation then if I am using water as my, my vehicle, which I typically do, I don't, I don't go crazy. I don't, I think some people over water in my opinion, um, they're, they're just told like in mortuary school, you got to get to that two gallon mark. You know, that's what they always say. And I think that's crazy. That means I'm pumping this person up with water. We don't need that. That's not doing embalming. It's just there for a vehicle. So is there another option? I know that there are different um, kind of water-based solutions. Like I think someone should come out with something that comes in the gallon or something like that because a little 16-ounce bottle, that's going to be tedious and I don't want to use for the surfactant bottle. Do you see what I'm saying? Like if we had a larger one, yeah. that would be a, an affordable option. I'm just completely spitballing. I never actually thought about this before, but maybe that yeah, would be Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, people have thought about it, you know, and it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting question um, because, you know, and we could talk for quite some time on this, so I will try my best to be succinct here. Historically, they came in gallon bottles pre-diluted. Now, here's, you know, the... Right. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. So if it's somebody's pre-diluting your solution, it might not be what you want. And not every case yeah. is going to be perfect for this pre-diluted solution. So concentrated is actually better for you because if we took two bodies, let's just say you're going to use a chemical. It has a concentration of 25 as far as aldehydes go. And we have two bodies, one's a demodus and one's emaciated. You're going to use less of that concentrated solution and less water than the, you know, the person between the two. You're going to, you're going to adapt to that. Sure. Um, if somebody, if, you know, if I sold you a bottle of gallon that was pre-diluted, you wouldn't have, you can't, you can't uh, concentrate from diluted. We can't. I mean, yes, you can in a lab, but you're not, in, your, in your funeral home, you don't have the equipment to concentrate right. down. Yeah. And so that makes it more challenging. And and shipping becomes expensive too. You know, if I'm going to ship you a gallon yeah. of a 2% solution, that's more expensive than shipping you two gallons of a concentrated solution. You know what I mean? Or a gallon of concentrated solution. Yeah. Is there a, a, another kind of point on that um, that does answer like part of my question, but the other half is, is there a, a solution that we could use that is an alternative to the water that we could, in theory substitute as as kind of our our vehicle for getting and i know there's there's different things out there like that but kind of that's what i was more hinting on um was not actually pre-diluting it was more like i mix this in with my bottles that i typically use does that make sense yeah like a different vehicle there is a yeah. number of vehicles people use um at the end of the day what's nice about water 
is that you are 65 to 70% water. And most bodies that you embalm have a pretty high percentage of water. And yeah. so that allows for easy transfer and diffusion of your chemical from one area to another. So when you inject the vascular system, you want your chemical to diffuse out. And water, water from outside the body is going to mix you know, evenly with water inside the body so your chemical can move pretty easily through that. And even in waterless embalming, those bottles have water in them. And so yeah. it is, it is, it's, there's a reason why it's a standard, um, yep. a vehicle. Uh, you can use things like alcohol, um, but you know, um, and they'll help dehydrate out the body. Certainly. I don't know what they would do for distribution if, and it would be very expensive to do, I think as well, which, yeah. you know, if we were taking the cost factor out of it, you know, if it was like, I got, I get the most amazing embalmings with using yeah. methanol as my vehicle. I just haven't heard that from anybody because most of us are, I think that would just dehydrate out a body. It'd be like, you know, the, like with alcohols, I'm sure you know someone who went out on a Friday night and drank way too much alcohol and they're super dehydrated the next day. And that's what alcohols do to, to uh, embalm bo bodies, you know, decedents anyways. So um, water ends up being a pretty good vehicle. You just control how much you're using. And if you make your uh, embalming solution more concentrated, you can dry out, you know, make a hypertonic solution. You probably remember sure. that from mortuary school. It yep. starts to, you pull the water out of the body. Um, but as far as distribution, um, most of the vehicles that we use are going to exhibit some level of molecular cohesion and uh, hydrogen bonding. And that's where we run into the problem. And surfactants really help with distribution. Got it. And then we just do our best, just like we always do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can you can see the distribute check for designs and distribution and those things. Yeah. yeah. And then I think that's such a good point about the dehydration, because for me, I think that's a huge, huge factor. Um, I, I, I think like bodies back in the day when I was kind of first getting started, they would just pump up and they would be just stiff as a rock and like dry. And that's not what human beings look like or how they behave. And we want to make this as lifelike as possible. So I think that's a beautiful thing that we've come a long way in the way we're doing this process as far as making kind of like the textured type of fluids and making someone be as lifelike as possible. Because end of the day, obviously we're trying to preserve and disinfect, but we want to make sure that this person is as beautiful as possible for our families. Totally. And you know, uh, aldehydes are really great chemicals for us to work with because when we talk about preservation and disinfection, the way aldehydes work is they preserve tissue and disinfect at the same time. So, you know, for bacteria, when you're killing bacteria and you're disinfecting and sanitizing, you're preserving those bacteria, right? So that's kind of cool. That's the same reaction that's happening to the t human tissue to the bacterial tissue. So that's really good about formaldehyde. That's a really good bonus quality, you know, and it's readily accessible and it's affordable and all those really good comments, but it's really astringent and it's challenging to work with. And Michael, yeah. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity um, to use homemade embalming fluid, which I have. I've used it in, oh. yeah, I used it in England. We used some homemade embalming fluid. And no in Mexico, it's pretty popular to use. It's really? Like, yeah. If you, have you ever gotten a, a body that's been transported in from Mexico and you're like, why yeah. is the distribution? I have, I have parts of the body that are rock hard and other ones that are just going bad. It's because <laughs> the things that chemical companies put into that bottle of embalming fluid. So in both of those in, in England, when I use homemade embalming fluid and in Mexico as well, what they literally do is they buy formaldehyde, mix it in water and then inject a body. Now in Mexico, what they yeah. also do is they add in high C or, or maybe it's Kool-Aid. It's one of the two no for, for dye, for a dye. Yeah, it's wow. true. And um, those, yeah, they don't distribute very well. They dehydrate out the tissue. They cause the tissue to turn gray. Um, sure. All of those things that you could list, because we've all seen, everybody listening to this has seen a body that's been transported in from Mexico. And we know that um, the body's kind of, you're, you're always like scratching your head, like, why does it look quite like this? What did they use? Water? <laughs> and it's sometimes, yeah, they've used water and diluted formaldehyde. Um, so we add in humectants, we add in surfactants, we add in anticoagulants. At the very nature, when you think about formaldehyde, I always wondered this as an apprentice. I was like, mm -hmm. okay, hmm, I want the body to, I want proteins in the body to crosslink, 
But as I'm injecting the vascular system, there's a lot of proteins in there. Aren't they cross-linking and limiting my distribution at the same time? And the answer is, yeah. yeah you're, you know, one of the ways we describe embalmed tissue is we say cross-link, we say fixation, we say mm-hmm. methylene bridges, but we all say coagulate. You know, we also say coagulate. And so you're coagulating proteins in the vascular system. So we add in anticoagulants and buffers and things that will make formaldehyde work better in the body because it is quite astringent on its own. And if you ever have the opportunity, yeah, I was I did some work in Birmingham for a little while. You literally walked up to a five gallon container of this clear solution and it was it's labeled formaldehyde solution. And you got eight ounces for every gallon that you made. You know, okay. and you say, okay, there's eight ounces. And you were injecting the body and you're just, I think this is good. And parts would turn extremely gray. Other parts, you know, would just be like super soft, you know, just no preservative whatsoever. Oh. And no preservative is no dis, no disinfection, you know. Right. So I guess at the end of the day, when you see splotchiness and dye, you have to say to yourself, what else is not distributing evenly right. for all of your fluid? right yeah very interesting very interesting yeah. so you've been kind of all over the world it seems tell me about kind of how that came about um i know you've done embalming all over the place you got schools opening all over the place too and um we'd love to hear about how that kind of got started in the first place and um what your plans are and what you've done yeah well yeah that's well i will say first of all i have been extremely fortunate with my career, um, it, it kind of did something that I, I don't, I, I never expected. Um, yeah. And just to start, the reason that I went to mortuary school, I don't come from a mortuary background or a funeral home mm-hmm. background. I went because I knew I was going to be in school for a long time. I knew I was either going, I was going to get a graduate degree, some sort of advanced degree, and I didn't have a way to pay for it. And my folks didn't have a lot of money, and so. Part of my goal was to get an education in a, a career technology, um, CTE field or a vocational field, and then I could subsidize my education as I got a bachelor's degree and some, le- you know, if I got a master's and a PhD. And um, so I went to mortuary school, and then I got uh, licensed and did my apprenticeship in California. It's two years. And then after uh, I got licensed, I was online and I met someone in Ireland. I went out to Ireland for a year and a half and started a school there and uh, worked with many people out in the field. Uh, It was this was in the mid 90s. And so uh, they were embalming, to be sure. But embalming was uh, classes were done through correspondence with the BIE. So we started the first on ground uh, mortuary school, which was a lot of fun to do because I was young. I was like 21 at the time. It was so fun. What made you you think to even do that? Like, oh, I'm going to start a school. Um, you know, that's a great question. I, I, to me, I was, again, I was young and I was like, Hey, what can I do? Let's have some fun. And I get this invite to go work in Ireland. I'm like, that sounds exciting. I have nothing here to hold me back. And so I jumped on a plane and the ride from Dublin, I lived, uh, I lived and worked in a town called Balana. It's out on the West of Ireland and it was a four hour ride. Okay. And so we're sitting in the car, I'm sitting in the car with the guy who is my, who was my boss at the time. And uh, he's like, we talked for about two hours and he looks at me, and goes, you know, I, I feel like you know what you're doing and I really want to start a school and I can't do it alone. Do you want to do that with me? And I'm like, yeah, what have I got to lose? You know, like I could get on a plane tomorrow and fly away and no one will know the difference, you know, but it ended up being uh, pretty important, I think, for that culture because I've gone back multiple times to give lectures and it sure. did it did actually infuse more education into the Irish culture. Um, so it was a great opportunity. I absolutely loved it. At the time, I didn't realize how much I enjoyed educating and working with people. Um, it was just sort of this, you know, like I said, it was just sort of a fun thing to do. And I never thought I would be an educator. That was so far from what, you know, was in my scope of things. So I left there and went to a few other places. I worked in uh, all over the Pacific Northwest and Portland, and I was in South America for a while, um, just kind of bouncing around, doing some embalming, you know. And then I thought, oh, you know, it's time to get back and do work on my uh, my degree. And so got back to LA, started working on my bachelor's degree, which was cell molecular biology, because uh, I'm a biologist at heart. I, you know, a lot of people associate me with chemistry. I just had to take yeah. so much chemistry. And, and I, I should probably digress on that. How much time do we have? I'm sorry, I'm probably boring as you at this. As much as you want. <laughs> um, but, 
So I um, I go back to school for my cell molecular bio degree, and that was you know four year degree. Of course, I did not go to a counselor, and it took five years. So that's my plug. Like try to streamline your education. Don't do what I did. Uh, so it cost me an extra year, but at the end of it, I pulled out the uh, chemistry book from mortuary school, which I had been unable to read. And, you know, when in mortuary school uh, five or six years earlier. And um, I read it. I read it in about two days. And I'm like, this, this is material is very, it's, it's not challenging. It's just not written for us. And by us, I mean us mortuary people, us funeral home people. Right. And it dropped a nugget in my head. I've got to write a book sometime about chemistry. Um, then um, right out of my undergrad, I got accepted into a PhD program for pathology. Technically, it was pathobiology, which is molecular pathology. And um, was working in that, and uh, towards the end of it, um, I decided I had to get to work and started looking at my work options. And I thought I would go into biotech, and I thought I would, you know, do toxicology and biotech and drug development. And uh, well, the market had crashed, and there was not a lot of openings. Biotech wasn't really flourishing at the time, and I reached out to. Uh, the mortuary school I went to, which was still close to me. And I said, hey, do you have any teaching positions? And they said, yeah, we do. We can put you in embalming lab. And I thought, okay, that sounds like something I could do. And embalming lab was a really unique um, environment to teach in. Because for anybody who's listening to this that's done any public speaking and teaching is public speaking, it's pretty horrible. You get in front of a group and you know they're judging you and you're nervous and they're going to be smarter than you and you're just, anything you're wearing is going to be, you know, it's going to look goofy <laughs> and you feel awkward. Anyways, in, yeah, in an embalming lab, everybody's dressed the same. We're all wearing PPE, right? Yeah. And they can only see my eyes. Right? I have a mask on, I have the bonnet on. I, all they see is my eyes, right? So they can't really judge me. And so that goes away. And more importantly, Michael, I was, I was, there's a dead body in the room, right? There's, there's, there's human remains. So they don't care about me. They're like, there's a body. Like students are super excited about like, we're finally in embalming lab. So I got to sit back and observe uh, what happened. And I looked around and it hit me. And to say it was the first week is not an exaggeration. It hit me the first week, like, uh oh, I, I like helping people. And I, and I yeah. want to be an educator. This is going to be part of my life for a little while. That yeah. led to, that was a part-time job at Cypress College. And then um, I was offered a position at American River College in Sacramento as a program director. And I accepted that position. And then um, I met uh, Robert Holmes, who was the co-author of my book. He walked into my office and he was teaching chemistry. He's a chemistry PhD. He actually, he was, when I met him, no joke, he was making rocket fuel. That's literally what Robert was doing, wow. he was making rocket fuel. Yeah, yeah. And um, <clears throat> he says to me, I don't like this chemistry book. We sh-, and I looked at him and I said, Robert, we should write one because I didn't like it either. And now I had the access to a chemistry PhD because I was, yep. I'm, you know, I'm a pathology PhD. And can I legitimately write a chemistry book? I don't know. I need a chem PhD to help with that. Right. And so he looked at me and he said, Damon, we can't just write a textbook. I said, Robert, we can do whatever we want. And so we yeah. sat down and we wrote Turning Art into Science. And we wrote it with the objective that we wanted students to enjoy chemistry and we wanted to make it relatable to chemistry. And in the yeah. process of that, we, uh, that, I came up with the idea of EmbalmCalc, which is the embalming calculator. Plug, you know, it's free. You should download <laughs> it and uh, use it because you will figure out the concentrations of the embalming solutions that you're using. It's, it's free and it's easy. And if there's a regular calculator on it too, so you can calculate tips and things like that. <laughs> um, but I wanted to build some validity into our project. And you're going to find this amazing probably – but in my um, graduate career, I made, I don't even know how many solutions, right? I, yeah. I, I couldn't even tell. We're making solutions for everything. And whenever you went to a chemical company's website, they had a dilution calculator on it. And so as we're writing this book and we get to the dilution section, I'm like, why don't we have, why doesn't embalming have a dilution calculator? Why are all the schools making us do this by hand? Because when people right. leave school, A, if they even understand it. Right. If people even get because yeah. most of us don't even they're just like, I don't really get this. It's such a small portion. I'm not going to remember this. Bye. You know, I, why? You know, and then they'd never get out in the field and calculate it. Right. And we're told not to You get out in the field. And people are like, don't even do that. No one does that. And it's like yeah. you're supposed to be the expert. 
right? And some people call themselves like postmortem surgeons, but I'm not going to calculate a simple dilution. Or some people are like, I want to be paid a lot of money, but I'm not going to be the expert. I'm like, it's so easy to do. So I just said, we're going to make a dilution calculator because no one had done it in our field yet. It was very easy to do. I'm going to make it free. And Robert's like, we should charge. I'm like, no, Robert, we should make it free because I want people to use it. So it will always be free. And it's great for students because some educators will say, you know, I want my students to do it by hand. That's cool. That's fine. I trust you know what you're doing. But one of the problems that I've experienced with students is that just plugging in the variables can be challenging. And Mm -hmm. so if you put it on an app on their phone, it suddenly becomes a little bit more palatable to them to say, oh, what's the concentration of the bottle versus concentration of the tank? Suddenly it's easier to learn to plug in the variables. And so I think that's how most educators are using it. And then people understand the the math a little bit better. So, and, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we got calls from, you know, people like Ben, Ben Schmidt, who was like, hey, you know, I like that chemistry book. I'm using it a lot. And I have an idea for a book. And I was like, well, let's do this. You know, so we started publishing companies that gives us access to do exactly what we want. And so we have this publishing company that we started up. And, um, you know, I went from there and I'm, so now I'm educating, I'm starting, I'm doing these books and we have these educational apps and Ben and I started working pretty closely together and formed a bond and we sure. uh, created Mort Tracker, which some schools are using now, which just tracks yeah. where students, what they've done for their graduation requirements. And then I, I was contacted, I did a podcast and I was, and I try to stay pretty low under the radar and uh, which maybe sounds hard to believe, but I really did for a while. <laughs> I got contacted by Frigid Fluid after I did a podcast and they were like, hey, we heard what you said and we want you to be our director of education. And I thought, wait a minute, wait just a second. I've seen you guys on social media. You fly all around the world and you want me to like talk to people about embalming. It's like, hello, pinch me. Is this true? Like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So we started, we, we talked started working together and that's resulted in you know my passport it's like my passport's getting stamped up and uh, that's really you know all fun and games to say but the reality is i'm going to different parts of the world and educating and talking about embalming and for me it's literally a dream come true to have a home base in the united states and be in a field where i'm watching it change and adapt and disseminate that to other parts of the world to cultures who are really excited about learning when we yeah. do our classes in Mexico, we get 120 people that are absolutely engaged. They show up, they pay a lot of money to be there. They're completely engaged. They're asking yeah. questions. I don't speak Spanish. So we have translators. It's, it is an amazing time. Um, same with Italy. I'm going to France in a little bit, going to do another class out there. Uh, South Ooh. Africa, we're talking to people in South Africa and the associations to, to set up some classes and start a school there. Um, so, and, and Frigid's been as... as you probably know New Zealand and you know South Pacific and Pan Asia and and so all the world starts to open up for educating about embalming and it's just it's amazing so nutshell but long way sorry it's so cool no yeah. I love it and the fact that you're able to do that and you're living your dream and you're getting to go and spread all this knowledge to so so many people especially in areas of the world that have no idea what's like, I feel like the U S was kind of light years ahead of like other countries. And then now it's starting to catch up. It's very cool. Yeah, we really weren't. That's what I think that's, you know, all the work that was done before me, it really, I think benefited me because when I got to Ireland, my work visa was based on the fact that I could be an educator in a field that there weren't any educators. And I, we, I literally took our style of embalming over there. I was close, but it wasn't what we do here and the understanding of chemicals. Right. And then I really lucked out. I, I, I went to grad school in 2006 and I had, all I knew was funeral. That was me. That was who I was. I'd been in the funeral industry. Everybody I knew was funeral. And in 2006, I go to grad school and I have to sign a form that says I'm not going to work anymore. I'm just going to be a grad student. I was like, I guess that's the end of my funeral life, you know? And it was kind of a very strange day. I was excited. I'm going to get a PhD, but I'm like sad because like, bye-bye funeral world. And to, to marry those two ideas and to find this niche, you know, where I was like, I can take everything I learned in my academic life and apply it to embalming and as an educator and as, you know, somebody that helps people take, you know, their understanding a little bit further, you know, it, it's just, it's sort of, it, it's, 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 it's amazing. I'm, I'm very fortunate. It's wonderful. Uh, so 
when when you were kind of going through this like way back and um when you were first getting started with your undergrad and everything were you working doing embalmings like in the prep room like how did you get you know such a, a strong connection to the actual embalming process like i know you have a lot of education behind it but how do you get that um that first connection and do you still get to do it i'm sure you don't get to do as many because you're so busy traveling all over but do you get to still witness any or get your hands in there anytime yeah, that's a great question. I had someone come in there like, oh, that guy's an educator. He doesn't embalm anymore. But here's the deal. Yeah, I do. I actually, I do. That's the thing. I actually do embalm still. So uh, just in a nutshell, when I did my apprenticeship in California, you have to do 100 bodies in two years. By the time I finished my apprenticeship, oh, wow. I was at like 16, 1700 bodies or something like that. Because um, I was at a high volume funeral home. And then when I got to uh, Ireland, I was embalming at least once a day. And yeah. that was in 95. And then 95 to 90 to 2001, I started school. So um, I was working as, at a funeral home. I also had a trade company that I ran with several accounts. And nice. so I was embalming a lot. And um, part of the problem that I ran into with a biology degree is all the classes were offered during the day. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be tough because I need to take labs and stuff to, to graduate. So I actually, near me, there was a funeral home that had a swing shift. And so I would go in from 3 to 11. So this was, you know, I really feel for my students who are working and they're juggling a lot. I would wake up at like 6 or 7, go to school till three, go to the funeral home till 11, and then go trade and bomb until whenever. And sometimes yeah. that literally meant I would drive right back to school and sleep in my parking lot in front of my calculus class. No joke, that would happen. So I was embalming wow. all through school. When I got to grad school, I did not embalm. There was a time when I did not embalm. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I graduated and I started working at Cyprus, we do all our embalming in-house. And mm -hmm. so I was embalming at school and then at American River College, we our students went out to funeral homes like they do in some mortuary schools. So I would go out to funeral homes and work with students and embalm there. And now I'm back at Cyprus. So I was embalming on campus for a while. And with Frigid, and this is what's kind of cool, with Frigid, uh, just as an example, in uh, last March, I had my spring break and we did a two-day seminar in Mexico City. And I said to I Nelson remember, Sanchez, yeah. I was like, hey, Nelson. Yeah, yeah. I said, hey, Nelson, you know what? This looks like a lot of fun. And I love Mexico City. If you haven't been, it's cosmopolitan. It's just, it's dope. It's a great city. So I'm going to cool. take a couple of days on my spring break and stretch it out and hang out in Mexico City, do some running, you know, work out, check out some sites, eat some food. Yeah. And he said, okay, cool. He called me a couple of days later and he said, hey, listen, here's what I've done. Damon, we know that you like riding motorcycles, you like off-roading, and you like running. So if you're going to be there a week, I've set you up with some embalmers who like to ride motorcycles. So I went on a motorcycle oh, ride out, yeah, out to the pyramids outside of Mexico City, you know, and they put me on a Ducati and it was super cool. And then um, the next, I went to another funeral home and I met up with someone who likes to do trail running. So we went up in the mountains of Mexico, outside of Mexico City, the trail runs. And oh, then cool. the um, the last few I went to, they went, uh, they like to off-road. So we went off-roading, you know, but wow. at all of these funeral homes, I embalmed with these people. And so we Good. did like hands-on clinical work. And so I got to see them embalming. Now they're all using modern fluids. They're using frigid fluids. Okay. And so they're fluids I'm familiar with, but they also had access to fluids that I, I wouldn't necessarily use or I wouldn't have access to because they're developed by Mexican embalming companies. Um, so uh, I got to use some of those to see what they look like. Yeah. Um, and that happens pretty regularly. You know, I was in Florida and I got to embalm at some funeral homes out in Orlando. Um, so it's, it's really cool what I get to do. Sometimes sure. I run into problems with, with licensure. If I leave the United States, never an issue. I can always jump in a prep room <laughs> and embalm. But, you know, but in, in certain the, the 50, 50 states, it's like a bit of a problem to, uh, you know, jump into like a funeral home in, say, Washington because yep. I'm not licensed there. So I have to have an embalmer with me and we, we work it out. But, um, yeah, so I still, I still, you know, get behind the wheel. Absolutely. That's great. What do the machines look like in different parts of the world? Like, are they still using kind of, I mean, I know Frigid has those beautiful new looking machines, how gorgeous, but what about other parts of the world? Like, what are those looking like? And um, how do they differ from what we kind of have nowadays here? 
Okay, that, that's an amazing question. Okay, so um, this you might find this hard to believe. Okay, so the funeral homes that I embalm at gravity. that are <laughs> they're not even using gravity because it takes too long, right? So the funeral homes that I I've worked at that are associated with frigid, well, they almost they always have a machine. Uh, whether it is that frigid machine or something that bought prior to the release of the frigid machine, there's you know a, a machine that you're probably familiar with seeing in prep rooms or in catalogs. Um, yeah. For other funeral homes, and I ran into this in Ireland in the mid '90s, and people are still using these. Do you know when you go to um, let's say a home goods store like Home Depot or Lowe's, yeah. what we have out here? And those insecticide sprayers that are like a container, yeah. maybe they hold like five gallons. They got a pump on them and a hose coming off of them. No that's, way. That's, that's what people are using to inject bodies. Because that hose is about the same size as the hose you put on your arterial tube, right? Yeah. Yeah. So zero pressure and control. And um, now it's it, – but, you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, it works. It works, right? Yeah. And so they just haven't been exposed to the equipment that's available, and maybe it can be cost prohibitive. But sometimes it's what your only option is. Um, I, yeah, I've embalmed people in their beds, and you can't carry an embalming machine into someone's house, right? No. And so what I would take in is that old timey kit that many of us own in our house with jars, exactly. And you 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 have a hand pump, and you aspirate yeah. and inject with the hand pump. You just reverse the flow on it, and so oh, I have injected okay. people with a hand pump. You know, and there's very little pressure and flow control in that. Obviously, you have some control with the arterial to, or the stopcock rather, but you're just like hoping to get enough pressure to start pushing fluid into the body, and you can't drain because you can't drain someone in their bed. So you have to do a hard tap into another jar. I understand where that comes from, and I think as um, as the world as it develops more in some countries, uh, they'll get machines because they're just more they are more precise. They're easier to use. The problem oh, yeah. with um, uh, the pumps is that you just try to build up as much pressure to penetrate all the tissues, and you end up you end up damaging vessels, right? Yeah. So you get a lot of distribution to if you're injecting the carotid, wherever your injection point is, you get a really good distribution there, not so much the distal portions, but you, but it can, you can get it effectively. Um, so that's why they probably still use it because you can get distribution all over the body. It's just not even like we get with our that's machines. Amazing. What about, what about when you're going up into the face, do they have issues with eyes blowing up and things like that? I, I only imagine. Yeah, you really want to control your rate of flow uh, with the stopcock there, and you don't want to build up a whole lot of pressure. Right. If you, you know the the thing to consider, I think, uh, is that um, <clears throat> when I embalm in the United States, and I think for most of us, most of us, not all of us, um, the body that you get has probably been in a morgue at a hospital or in some holding facility for a little while. The bodies that I've embalmed in other countries are still warm. So you get really yeah. good distribution based on that. Yeah. So when you're injecting down, like say the right carotid, you do get this, the collateral circulation through the vertebrals and then the left carotid to sure. the head gets injected. So if you tie off the superior portion of the right carotid, after right. you get some drainage out of it, you can, you know, you, you create that pressure point for the head and you get distribution to the head. And that's where you would say, you really make that decision. As an apprentice, I was told you always inject up the head. And so, yeah, okay, I get that. That makes yeah. sense. But if injecting up the head means you're going to swell the features of the face, then you don't necessarily want to do that, especially if you've gotten distribution. Because if the body is recently dead and you get, I mean, they're still warm. If you've ever embalmed a warm body and anybody out there has ever embalmed a warm body, it's like, it's kind of a treat. You know, you're like, wow, the, just, the drainage is amazing, right? And the distribution There's is nothing incredible. better. There's nothing yeah. better. It's like they are attached the arterial tube to themselves. It's, it's incredible, you know? <laughs> um, what about you touched on aspiration? Uh, is that like really a thing? I, I feel like I heard when I was in mortuary school that not everyone even does aspiration, but we must. Of course, I know we need to. But what about other parts of the world and different parts of the country? Do you see that not being a standardized, standardized procedure ever? I would say it's more standardized than not, even in other parts of the world. Okay. Uh, I do know embalmers who do, they don't aspirate because they say it, it creates more problems and uh, 
more leakage and cavity fluid. You're trying to get fluids out of the body and then you put in another 16 to 32 ounces and that creates more of an issue than you necessarily want to deal with. I would always do cavity work. I, I, I've yes. always done it. I, I just, I always, I, I can't think of a situation where I wouldn't. In fact, I have worked at funeral homes where um, if the family opts not to embalm, but they still get permission to do cavity work because yeah. the distension of swelling from bacterial blooms can be very problematic as far as purge yeah. and discolorations in the face. Once you start building up the pressure in the abdomen and it forces the blood in the face. So I, I think all of those things being considered, that would, you know, it, it is truly, it is the norm to do cavity work versus not doing it that I've seen. That's where all the nastiness is, you know, like you gotta, you gotta treat that. And that's interesting yeah. that some funeral homes would do that. That's, that's very interesting. How'd you, uh, how'd you come up with that persona that you have in all your videos where, I mean, I guess that's kind of just who you are, I guess, from talking to you, but, yeah. uh, where'd you come up with that, that shtick and like, um, how, how does that, how does that go? You know, um, that, that's another great, great question. So, um, I think where that comes from is when I started teaching, you know, you kind of hug a podium and you're just like, wah, 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 and, and I was standing in front of a classroom and it was, I was teaching chemistry. So after I was teaching in the embalming lab, they're like, Hey, Damon, you got this PhD in sciences. Let's put him in a chemistry class. Cause not a lot of people want to teach chemistry. Right? right. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. And I get up to there. I'm hugging the podium. And, wah, 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 wah. and I'm like, they hate this. I hate this. I've got to figure something out. And I just kind of like let go. And if you watch me in, if I do public speaking anywhere near you, or you watch me in a classroom, I tend to walk around and I like get, you know, I don't want to say I get in people's faces, but like, you know, I'll sit down next to someone and have a conversation with them. I've done this at like, you know, state conventions and, and I just try to really draw people in. And that, that was sort of the, the beginning of it. And after, um, what really happened is I started doing videos and Nelson's like, I was working with Nelson from Frigid and I was working with this gentleman named Jake from Frigid and they're like, this is not you. What's happening? The minute we turn a camera on, you're like, mm, like frozen. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I've got to swing it so really hard in one direction. Yes. And, and that's, and I have since read that like when you, when you start doing videos, you have to like, be 110% of yourself. Yep. Otherwise it just doesn't translate. And it's, that's sort of where it came from. And, and then, you know, you have, you know, it was like, howdy folks. And like, you have people start, like, they come up to you and they say that and like everyone. And if you know me, you're like, it's really kind of funny. Um, yeah. But I think the important, the really important thing is when I was doing the, the, the longer frigid videos, the guy that the videographer who did that is a guy I grew up skateboarding with and I've known him for years. And um, I already sort of like started developing that sort of like, you know, act at 110%, you know, deliver 110%. And, and he said to me, he goes, he was editing the videos and he, he called me up and he's like, you know, Damon, uh, this is really interesting. He's not an embalmer. He's a video guy. He went to art school. He says, right. you know, Damon, this is, uh, these are, these are really good because I'm learning as you're, as you're like going over this material, I'm learning and I'm not an embalmer and you're keeping me engaged but you're not making fun of it. Like you, there's, you're definitely, it's serious, but you're making it approachable. And that's always yeah. been the goal. That's been the goal when we wrote the book. We It's serious, but we want it to be approachable. We want people to say, hey, wait a minute, this is how chemistry works for me. And I, you know, I want it to be something where people are like, I like watching the videos and I am learning something. And in class, you know, I try to be uh, sort of engaging, which is very hard because, and people will laugh. I'm a bit of an introvert. I like to just, I'm kind of a homebody, you know, and so, so it is hard for me. I can walk around school and people are like, Hey, Dr. D. And I'm like, Oh God, no, people are talking to me. I got to run away. You know? Um, but the reality is, is like when I get, when I'm delivering information that I feel passionate about, then it just turns on like that. And you're like, yeah. okay, this is because you get excited about it. And then that rubs off and people are getting excited. And then you're having more of a conversation. So that's really where it comes from. Somebody's like, do 110% because you're only going to translate 75% of it. And it feels no joke, awkward. It is so hard to be like, wow, look at this wacky, you know, but it, but it is like, you know, but there, I think if, if people are watching them and they get something out of it and that's, that's really the goal, you know, um, yeah. You know, I guess if it was just super boring, you know, 
we might not be talking right now. <laughs> right. No one yeah. will watch. It's it's all about captivating and you're getting that knowledge across. So I think I think it's a it's a that's the way to do it. There's only one way and that's yeah. the way to do it. Yeah. And you know, we do, we do get some requests from people about like some fun facts, things like that. You know, anybody that's listening, if you want to know more about something, just email me. Um, my contact information, it's on my, my business card and I can leave all of that with you, Michael. Uh, yeah. Email me, call me, whatever. And then, you know, find me on social media. I'm on Instagram and a couple different uh, I'm, I'm bomb calc on Instagram and Dr. Damon De La Cruz on Instagram. We have the YouTube videos. You can find me at Frigid. There's a lot of different ways to find me. Cypress College, you can find me. And email me if you have anything you want to know about. If you have any embalming questions that you just want to talk to me about, I get calls all the time. I love, there's nothing better than having you know, a conversation with an embalmer in wherever. Oh, yeah. That's just like, hey, I've got this body. You know, I love that. I just love that. Yeah. Yeah. We all have like that common connection and it just, it's fun to talk about and you get to pick people's brain and learn different things. And um, we appreciate you for being so accessible to like all of the people listening and just for the whole industry in general and what you're doing around the world is truly, truly incredible. And we, we appreciate it and admire everything for that. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's just, like I said, I'm fortunate and I, I just, yeah, I, you know, it's unfortunate, you know, so thank you. Um, thank you for having and me. Dr. D had a couple shirts that we made for him. So we're just going to release those today. So go check them out. They're really fun shirts. There's three different options. And do you want to give us a final send off? Do you want to do your classic send off? <laughs> oh, no, the classic send off. I don't know. I do want to plug the shirts because, uh, yeah. you know, one of them is, yeah, the Halloween from a couple years ago. We tried to do a bomb calc with a Halloween theme. And this, this year I did saw and last year, you know, I did this like pumpkin thing. People seem to really like that. So that shirt's available. It's in orange, you know, so it's kind of a thing. And I guess if I was going to do any kind of send off, you know, I think what it all comes down to all of life, I was a biologist. I am a biologist. I will always be a biologist. And I think what that means is, you know, even as a kid, I just looked around at the world out, you know, around me. And I, I said, how does this all work? And that's what has always driven me forward. How does it all work? So if I had to yeah. say anything, just always stay curious, folks. That's what I wanted to hear. I didn't want to put you on the spot and make you do all that. I just wanted to hear the curious. <laughs> I love so it. Thank you for coming on. What a fun conversation. We appreciate you again. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much, Michael. <laughs>